Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, we are, uh, we're continuing a sermon series that we've been in in the summer on the book of First Timothy. This is a letter uh, written towards the later part of his life from the Apostle Paul to a younger pastor in the city of Ephesus, a man named Timothy. And uh, we have come today to chapter 4. And we're actually going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to look at uh, the next verses in our order here, which we normally do, kind of preach through books. Uh, we're going to look at these next verses of uh, 1 Timothy 4, but I'm also going to grab a few verses in 1 Timothy 6, because uh, here uh, Paul speaks to two, uh, two sides of the same issue, and I think we can see something pretty interesting if we look at them together. And so our scripture reading this morning is going to be uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and then chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. If you're willing and able, would you please stand with me? For the reading of God's word. Again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people especially those who believe. And now 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. I want to talk to start today about two of the most famous conversion stories in the history of the Christian church. 
The first happened right around 1200. It's the story of Francis of Assisi. Francis uh, was an Italian man. He was a, the son of a wealthy cloth merchant. His dad was, uh, had become wealthy by sa- uh, selling rich uh, and beautiful fabrics to the nobility of Italy. He was a wealthy young man. He became a knight in the army, and he lived his young life prideful and without care, enjoying the life of a rich, young merchant's son and soldier. His perspective began to change. Uh, he was kept as a ye- uh, for a year as a prisoner of war. And his eyes were opened to the suffering of the poor and the prisoner, and he began to become more compassionate in the midst of his wealth. But then one day he was sitting in church and heard the gospel reading from Matthew 19 when Jesus says to the rich young man, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And instantly he did it. He walked out of the church, didn't stay till the end of the service. He sold off his wealth. He gave up his inheritance and he moved to live in poverty in the valley outside of Assisi, serving the poor and caring for the people of the city, eventually beginning a small monastery and then a movement known as the Franciscans. He changed the world through denying worldly attachments that he believed posed a danger to his soul and to his love of neighbor. Fast forward about 300 years to another of these great conversions, this time Martin Luther. Martin Luther was living as a young man as a monk, not unlike what Francis ended up doing with his life. And he's living there as a monk, devoting himself to attaining righteousness with God through his spiritual disciplines, through his prayer, through his self-denial. And then... He too had a dramatic conversion experience where he saw for the first time in the Gospels that justification, being right with God, wasn't something that you attained through denying yourself or being good enough, but that it was a gift of God through Jesus. And so he left the monastery and he began pursuing a life. He started to see that what had happened in medieval Europe was that they had split the spiritual life the stuff God cares about, from the earthly life, the stuff of making a living and raising a family and building a city. And he said, no, no, these things shouldn't be separated. And so he devoted himself to sanctifying every bit of life. He became a really fascinating guy. He would sneak nuns out of convents uh, in order to make, so they could get married to monks who had left monasteries. He smuggled his own wife, uh, Katie, out of her nunnery in a uh, fish barrel you got to really want to marry somebody to jump in a fish barrel. He became, uh, with his wife, a brewer of beer. He began to take an interest in discipling people to take this split world of spiritual and secular and to lift up the ordinary vocations of life to see that all of life was made to be lived for the glory of God. Two different men, two very different conversions. Right? Both changed the world. Francis changed the world by denying the world. Luther changed the world by embracing the world, by taking something that had been split and trying to bring it back together. Most of us don't live out this decision in such stark terms. Most of us don't live uh, this decision of is all of wealth, all of the appetites, all of bodily existence bad, or is it all good? But we do all have to make these choices as Christians. 
In fact, just as human beings, as long as there's been human beings desiring a spiritual life, there's been this tension between the bodily and physical world and the spiritual world. How can we live life in this world while longing for the next one, longing for another world? How can we live in this world with what Richard Mao calls, calls a holy worldliness? Right? There's a bad worldliness. The Bible will talk about a worldliness that's in love with the stuff of this world. But Mao says, no, but there's also a holy worldliness, a worldliness that receives this world as a gift from a good creator that enjoys it and makes much of it and yet doesn't fall in love, become addicted to the stuff of this world. And it seems like Paul uh, is saying that to, to Timothy that both of these temptations were going on in Ephesus, and he had to learn to deal with them as the pastor. On the one hand, it seems like Timothy was dealing with some people who had adopted a kind of a world-denying spirituality, no marriage, no sex, no food. And then on the other hand, in chapter 6, it looks like he was also dealing with some people who were overly driven by the consumption of this world's pleasures, wealth, and goods. And so how does he pastor those, his people through those tensions? What's to be embraced and what's to be denied? And so that's what we're going to look at uh, in this passage. First, we're going to look at how as Christians were called to receive the world with gratitude, to receive this world with all of its pleasures, with all of its beauty, with all that the Creator has put into it, to receive it with grateful hearts. Paul begins chapter 4 with some strong language. Did you notice that? Like if I got up and started a sermon with, hey, some of you guys are devoting yourselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. You go, okay, I should, should have had my coffee this morning. Pastor Dave's going for it. So he says at the beginning, look, as I've been telling you, as the Holy Spirit has told us, there will be some who are led astray by the teaching of Satan and demons and who wander away from the faith. Well, if I started that way, when Paul starts that way, you go, oh man, what kind of mess are these people getting into? Right? You would think that we're talking about occult practices or worshiping the devil. You'd think that we're talking about maybe those kind of big, obvious, nasty sins, you know, that he's warning his people against uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and going off the deep end. But then he says, look, some of y'all are devoted to the lies of demons, you know, like chastity, not, getting, not having sex, not getting married, and abstaining from certain foods, probably meat. Now, that, that's, that's a lot. To say, like, some of y'all are being led astray by demons to not get married and to be vegetarians. You need to stop listening to those demons. What's going on here is, is Paul knows something that we don't know or that we, uh, we sometimes don't see, which is that evil can look a whole lot of different ways, right? Sometimes evil looks obvious, Sometimes sin looks obvious. It's the kind of thing that everybody knows, everybody looks at, everybody points at. It's the kind of sin that everybody would look at and go, oh yeah, that's bad. But there's also a more subtle type of sin, a type of sin that actually can look, instead of actually very, very bad, it can look really good. It's the kind of stuff that people around can look at and go, oh wow, look at him, look at her. What a good person. 
What an upstanding person. What a person who takes their life and their spirituality so seriously. And what seems to have been going on there is you had a group of people who had been led to put restrictions on their lives and restrictions in the church that God never intended to be put in the church or on his people. People who take uh, the commands of God and add to them to make it seem as though God is more restrictive than he is. So what Paul says is that evil, real demonic evil, doesn't just look like uh, going wild in a way the world would see, but it can also take a religious form of being uh, overly legalistic, self-righteous, judgmental, and restrictive. Right? There's, there's history in the Bible of viewing this kind of thing, this restricting of God's commands, is not just misguided, but actually evil with its origin in Satan himself. Remember Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent appears to Eve, the first thing the serpent says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the, free, uh, the fruit of the trees in the garden? Did God really say you can't have any of the fruit in the garden? And of course, God never said they couldn't have any of the fruit of the garden. God said you can't have this fruit from this one tree. And what, what the serpent did to get into Adam and Eve's heart is say, look, God has put way too much on you guys. God is denying you everything. God is denying you every pleasure. It makes God the Father appear more restrictive and denying in his commands. And so it can be this way of evil, this way of temptation to put more burdens on us in the name of God. I was talking to somebody uh, just last week, lives in Jacksonville, uh, and went to a Christian school here in town, no longer uh, goes to church. But when she was growing up and going to this school, uh, she, she was a, uh, as a young girl, when she went to the school, uh, all dresses at the school had to come and hit at mid-calf. That was the, the dress code. Young lady, I don't, I don't see a lot of mid-calf dresses uh, stylistically, but that was what they were supposed to be wearing. Uh, they were also told, uh, as a cheerleader, uh, she said she always wanted to be a cheerleader, but their cheerleaders had to wear pants, and that seemed weird. She was sent home from school one day for wearing dangling earrings. She said you could wear stud earrings, but you couldn't wear earrings that dangle, you know, like the Bible says. This restrictive code, uh, do you think this led her to a more open, gracious, and loving picture of God? No, she's wanted nothing left to do with Christianity. Not because God's actual commands are overly restrictive, but because of the other commands that other people put around those commands to protect those commands, right? There's, nothing, there's something true about the call to beauty and modesty and decency and all of those things. But when we start prescribing for others and adding rules outside of the rules to make sure we don't get too close to the actual rules, the things become a burden. This is much of what, uh, you know, the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees among many in his day wasn't that they took God's actual commands too seriously, but that they added other commands on top of God's commands, right? They took the command to honor the Sabbath and they said, okay, well, let me tell you exactly what that means. You can walk this far, but not that far. You can do this kind of work, but not this kind of work. Between these hours, you can do this stuff. Outside of this, you can't do this stuff. 
They had fallen in love with the form of law. But it added uh, far too many burdens on top of it. And so Paul is telling Timothy, look, you're going to have to deal with this in your church. Because it seems like a little deal. In fact, these seem like maybe the holiest people in your church. These seem like the people who are going above and beyond what God asks. But it's very, very dangerous, spiritually speaking. We don't know exactly what was going on in Ephesus at the time. You know, uh, reading Paul's letters is kind of like listening in on one half of a phone call. If you're, you know, you, somebody's at the car with you, they're on one, one uh, end of the phone call. You hear one side of the conversation, you can't necessarily hear what's going on on the other side. And so when Paul's writing to Timothy, we don't have Timothy's letters to Paul. We don't have the exact uh, picture of what's going on in Ephesus. But what we do know is that in the culture of the time, both in the, uh, in the Jewish culture and in the Greek culture, there were strands that led people to this kind of intense self-denial. Within Judaism, we know that there was a pretty strong uh, movement of asceticism. The Essenes and the Qumran community were people who left Israel or left the cities to go live uh, in the wilderness, somewhat like monks. They didn't marry, they didn't have children, they denied themselves a lot in an effort to distance themselves and cut themselves off from the pagan Greeks and Romans. So that's, that, that movement was happening already within Israel. And then within the Greco-Roman culture, there was the beginnings of a philosophy uh, called Gnosticism, which held that the physical world, our bodies were inherently bad and corrupt, and the spiritual world was inherently good. And so all of this kind of swirled together, we think, so that there were some in the church that had this idea that the physical world, normal things like marriage and family and food, were to be avoided out of a desire for purity. And Paul says this is a really big deal. Why is this such a big deal? First, first it's because it plays into our human desire for self-salvation. Right? There's something in, if you look kind of across uh, world history, world religions, there seems to be a human impulse to figure out how do we become right with God and then how do we work hard enough to get there, right? How do we deny ourselves? How do we do the right things, say the right prayers, be the right kind of person so that in the end, God loves us, accepts us, and validates us? And that strikes actually at the very heart of the gospel. What does Paul say later here to Timothy? That God is the savior of all people. Jesus is the savior of all people, right? That he is the only savior. He's the only one who can save. That there's no amount of self-denial, no amount of holiness, no amount of stuff we don't do that can make us right with God. Only God can save. And so these patterns, as they got worked into the life of the church, uh, actually contradicted the core message of Christianity. It took a message that says you're made right with God only through God's gift of Jesus, and says, yeah, maybe, but some people can get a little bit better treatment by being extra good, by being extra denying. So it strikes at the gospel of free grace, and it strikes at the doctrine of creation. Right? Those two things that they were denying, marriage and food, are two of the things that God most fundamentally gives to his people. And not just to, to his people, but to all people. These are Genesis 1 and 2 level gifts, right? This is, it's not good for man to be alone. 
make Eve, here's your help, your, your, your partner. This is, I give you everything in this world, every plant-bearing seed for food, right? This is creational goodness of God. This is God giving his good gifts to people for them to enjoy, right? God didn't have to make these things good, right? God did not have to make food taste as good as it does, right? Just, it would have been enough. For God to say, oh, yeah, these people probably need to have food, so here's some, you know, here's some kind of paste you squeeze and you eat that. But instead, he gave us the richness, the sweetness of fruit, the beauty of, of produce and vegetables, the richness of meat, all that he, he gave all that to us to enjoy. Sexuality and marriage didn't have to be good. It didn't have to be fun. He could have just said, ah, yeah, you're probably going to need to reproduce. But no, he packed it full of joy, right? He gives these things to us as a good gift and to deny them is a denial of creation. It's a denial of his goodness and his love and his care for us. And so we're to receive these as gifts. Notice what he says, these things, it's made holy by the word of God and by prayer. By the word of God, meaning uh, we should look and see what of God's gifts or is he told us to enjoy and what does he put boundaries around, right? By his word, we, we, we look to see what's holy and what's not. What can we receive? What should we not? And by prayer, receiving with gratitude and thanksgiving. You know, in just a minute, we're going to look uh, at how belonging to Christ does mean learning to say no to some things. Right, like as, as a Christian in this world, there's going to be some things that our culture says yes to that we're called to say no to. Right, there's going to be some of the sector, just to look at kind of the most glaring uh, example, both then that Paul was dealing with and now, within the realm of human sexuality, there's going to be some things that our culture says yes to. But in faithfulness to the seventh commandment, we're going to be called to say no to. That's going to be a part of being a Christian in the world, is to live a life of chastity and faithfulness. But we start here, and I love that Paul starts here because starting here says, look, just because you're going to have to say no to some things doesn't mean that Christians should primarily be known by what you say no to, right? Christianity isn't fundamentally about taking the good gifts of the, of the creator and going, no, 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 not that one, not too much, be careful, it's about, a, it's about saying no to some things in order to receive a better yes and to say a better yes to good gifts of God given to us in the right context. We shouldn't be known uh, as, a, as purely a world-denying people, but a world-affirming people, receiving the good gifts that God's given us. Okay, so we receive the world with gratitude but he's also going, to, also going to teach us that we have to resist the pull of desires to be satisfied in this world. And that's what he's doing in chapter 6. He's saying in, in chapter 6, look, not, yeah, you've got these people that are saying no to far too many things. But you've also got these other people who are pursuing fulfillment in this world so entirely that they're saying yes to too much and being led astray from the faith. You've got people who've, who've enjoyed this world so much that they don't know when to say enough is enough. Who've enjoyed some of the blessings of this world, in particular the blessings of wealth, so much that they can't be satisfied any longer. 
And so we get these people who've been led astray by greed, by desire, run amok. This shows us that you can, you can be led astray by denying the world. And you can also be led astray by loving the world, all out of proportion. He tells us here that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? Again, he doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money, right? You can be, listen, you can be guilty of this kind of evil, whether you're rich or poor or in between, right? The love of money is the idea that wealth, if you get enough of it, will bring heaven into this world for you, right? That you can attain enough of something that if you just get enough, if you can have it, possess it and control it, that your life will be full and have meaning and purpose and you won't want anymore. And that love of money becomes a root of all kinds of evil. And it could be other stuff. You could say the love of sex is the, is the uh, root of all kinds of evil, the love of power, the love of control, the love of pleasure, the love of appearance, right? But it's the love of something, something that was given as a created good that comes to matter too much to us. And so it comes to take over our lives and possess us and control us. The doctrine of creation calls us to embrace the world. But the doctrine of sin calls us to be suspicious of our own hearts. Right? The doctrine of creation says, yeah, everything in this world is a gift of God that I can receive and enjoy. But we have Genesis 1 and 2 creation, but we also have Genesis 3 fall. The heart that I bring to the world, to enjoy the world, isn't a pure heart. It's a, part, it's a heart that is always going to look to find things to satisfy it, to find things that matter too much to it. So yes, doctrine of creation, love the world. Doctrine of the fall, be aware of our hearts. That the stuff of this world can come to matter so much to us that it distorts and warps our lives. What does Paul say? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment. The ability to know when enough is enough. The ability to receive with gratitude, God, thank you for this meal. Enjoy it. And not say, I think I need to go back for fourths. Right? The goodness is say, God, thank you for this paycheck. Thank you for the way you provide for me. If it was like 10 times more, I'd be happier. Right? The ability to receive with contentment. To say, God, it's enough. The way you take care of me is good. The blessings that you give to me are good. Yeah. Without saying, I had another spouse, or if I was free of this, or I had that, life would be better. To receive what God has given to us with joy and with gratitude. To learn the posture of, the, of Proverbs 30 where the author writes, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Lord, give me enough. Help me to learn contentment within the life that you've given me. And then finally, means receiving the world with gratitude resisting the pull of desire for more and more. And then finally, becoming fit to live in two worlds. 
Look at chapter 4 in verse 6 when Paul's giving his pastoral instruction to Timothy. If you lay these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the reverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul's saying, look, this kind of life, the kind of life that can know what to say yes to, can discern the gifts of God, and has the strength and courage and faithfulness to say no to sin and idolatry and and, and overlove of desire. This kind of life between two worlds, it's not just going to happen for you. You're not just going to do it perfectly. You're not just going to walk righteously through it. You're going to have to train. You're going to have to develop the right kinds of muscles to know what can you, how to walk as a follower of Jesus. It says, train yourself for godliness. This word godliness, it's not, it's not used uh, a ton in the New Testament. If I remember correctly, I think it's used 15 times and 11 of them are in the first and second Timothy. So it becomes a major theme for what Paul's saying to Timothy here is you're trying to teach people to walk in godliness. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a kind of posture of life, sometimes it's translated piety, but it's a life that's attentive to God, a life that follows Jesus and looking to his Father in reverence and worship and joy and in gratitude. And he's saying, look, if, if you're going to walk that way, if you're going to have that kind of wisdom and that kind of goodness, it's not just going to happen, right? You're not just, and and he, he makes the connection to physical training. Right? Like, you're not just going to wake up one day and be ripped, right? You're not just going to wake up one day and have lost 30 pounds, right? The way that the world works is that if you just go with the flow of kind of doing what you want, sleeping as much as you want, eating as much as you want, exercising as much as you want, it's not going to go great, right? Like left to our own devices, we don't drift towards fitness. Left to our own devices, we drift towards getting out of shape, right? And the same Paul's saying is true in our moral lives and our spirit spiritual life, right? Yes, it is. The the Christian life is all of grace. God is the only Savior. He's the only one who can give you life. He's the only one who can give you forgiveness. But if you want to live the kind of life that you want to live, that you're called to live, a life that's marked out as Christ-like and loving and whole, it's not just going to happen. You're not just going to wake up one day and be like, oh, I'm more loving, I'm more righteous, I'm more kind, I'm more honest, I'm less angry, less compulsive. No, it's going to take some training to become the kind of person who can live in the world in this kind of way. It takes practice and habits. It takes putting us ourselves in a place like this one, where you can come and, and come to know God and His Word, where you can worship Him, where you can fee, uh, feed on His communion supper. It's, it goes to a place where you develop a life of prayer and study and fellowship. Yeah. Right? There's ways that we train ourselves just as surely as you go to the gym uh, to get some exercise. Some ways that we partner with God in our own development as spiritual people. And he tells us that bodily training is for this life only. Right? It's, of, it's of much good in this world. So he's saying, look, Self-care and self-development is a good thing. It's good to train. It's good to grow. It's good to stay in shape, right? But those things are good for this life. 
Training uh, in the spiritual life, devoting yourself to God, seeking Him, develops you not just for this life, but also for the age to come. It helps you to learn to live as a person between two worlds. Right? And that is what it means to be a human being, especially what it means to be a Christian, is to live between two worlds. Right? The, the key to understanding so much of Christianity begins at the basic fact of the incarnation. Right? That Jesus, Son of God, child of heaven, was born into his own creation as God and man. And that to follow him, to, to place our faith in him, to be forgiven by him, to come into life with God in him, means that we too become a, a partner in his incarnation, that we live in this life, in this world, as, as, as citizens of this world. And we live as citizens of heaven, as people who belong to another world in the midst of this world. And both of those things are true about us. By faith, we live in two worlds, and both are core to who we are. It's not true to our condition to say, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, right? It's to say, this world is not my home, I'm going elsewhere, denies the fact that you were made of dust and placed in this world as the image of God. You were made in this world to represent God, to enjoy God, to cultivate the world that God's given us, and even when you die, in Christ, you don't leave this world. You go to be with him for a while in heaven, but then the story ends with a new heaven and a new earth. It ends with this world remade, heaven and earth no longer divorced, but come back together. So this world is our home. This world is what we are made for, but not a fallen and broken version of it. But it's also not true to our nature to say that this world is all that there is, and I'm going to live in this world to get all that I can. That denies the fact that we don't just live for this life, we live for eternity. Right? In this world, the scoreboard is not always going to level out for us. You're not always going to work hard and get exactly what you earned. You're not always going to do the right things and get all the blessings. Right? This world doesn't necessarily even out for us. And so we live for an eternity. An eternity in which we're promised. God's grace and his blessings and his remaking of the world. So we live between two worlds, receiving God's goodness and the gifts of his creation, and yet cultivating a heart that doesn't look to this world to satisfy every last one of our wants and desires, but cultivates a heart posture that looks to God, the Savior of all, to give us what only he can, the longings, of our true heart. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.